Welcome back to the Fastest Known Podcast. And again, just like last week with Blakewood, we have an esteemed guest, a person who's part of the heritage of FKTs, and that person is Flying Brian Robinson. Welcome, Brian. Hi, Bush. Now, the name Flying Brian, that's a good name. It's uh, not too many people get to have a name <laughs> like Flying Brian. And I know how you got this name, but please, let, let us know again. Well, for people that are not familiar, it's it's common on the thru-hike community to have a, a trail name. So the ultra-running community, there's a few around, but it's uh, very much more common among, among thru-hikers. And I, I did have a trail name that I tried to give myself, but uh, it didn't catch on. And people started using Flying Brian, and I had to admit it was a pretty cool name. But uh, it was not... It was not one that I chose. It was one that people who were talking about me, you know, said, um, you know, that's a pretty good trail name. And I personally first saw it on a, on a trail register on the California-Oregon border during my calendar Triple Crown. And it was not directly a trail name, but it was signed off as Keep Flying Brian. Someone had, <laughs> had written me a personal note in, in a register. And I looked at that and said, you know, actually, that's a pretty good trail name. That's <laughs> how it should happen, isn't it? That's how it should be done. It's organic. Yeah, exactly. An interesting um, um, trivia question is, well, what was the tra- trail name I gave myself? <laughs> Well, it wasn't slow, Brian. Probably. <laughs> In some sense, it was. It was. It was. It was. It was a line from the Rolling Stones' um, "Beast of Burden." You know, walked for miles and my feet are hurting. I'll never, 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 never be. So I called myself "Never Be." Oh, interesting. Well, I, kind of I think whoever wrote that, <laughs> whoever wrote that on the trail register, had uh, did. Did a good job because Flying Brian is here to stay, and uh, they're talking about that you just blew it out of the water. You changed the game, in my opinion. I think most people would think so as well. There was backpacker. Backpacking has been around for you know decades and decades. It's well known. A magazine called Backpacker, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But right. you were a through hiker, and you changed how it was done. So when someone says Flying Brian. <laughs> I know what you did, but tell, tell us what you did. Well, I guess when you're close to it, it's really hard hard to say. I mean, I I didn't I developed a few techniques here and there, but mostly I uh, popularized them and fine tuned them and applied them to, to things. I mean, the, the ultralight um, revolution had started a few years before I was into through hiking, and when I first got into it, I was like, wow, look at how light these, some of these guys' packs are. But people were not using it to try and do more stuff. There were people that were using it who were done to do photography and stuff like that, right? They wanted to carry some other other gear, so they wanted their base weights to be light, or there were people that just wanted to go super, super light just because they wanted to be super light. But I was the first person that said, hey, you know, if you've got to pack this light, you could do some amazing things with it. Right. And what the amazing thing you did is the calendar triple crown. The Triple Crown refers to the three big long trails in the United States, which, of course, are the Appalachian Trail, the Continental Divide Trail, and the Pacific Crest Trail. I think this totals approximately 7,700 miles, and you showed that it was possible to hike the length of all three in one calendar year, not over the lifetime, but in one calendar year. Right. Something I call a calendar triple crown. Some people call it a calendar year triple crown. 
But, uh, yeah, that's the, uh, the triple crown of through hiking. That's been around for longer than the 20 years that I've been doing through hiking. But if you were a person who hiked all three of those trails in your lifetime, even in sections, you, you, to this day, you're still called a triple crowner. So it's been a, a major lifetime achievement goal for, for, for through hikers. And, uh, when the ultralight revolution came along, I said, you know, I think you could achieve a lifetime's worth of through hiking in one year. And you did that in 2001, starting in January. 300 yep. days, finishing it up, uh, you know, in late fall, the same year. Yep. And you were averaging, if I recall, 26 miles a day. Is that about right? Some, something in that range. Um, the actual miles I did was about 7,400. And I think if you do 7,400 divided by 300, you'll get something a little bit less than a marathon a day. Uh, but I had some days off, so uh, it depends on exactly which of those days you count. And of course, in FKT parlance, you got to count them all. So, <laughs> you do three hundred days. <laughs> That's right. Once you start, that clock starts with you. <laughs> exactly. So th- that works out to about twenty-five miles a day. But uh, in terms of actual how many miles I did on a on any one full day, I was I was averaging you know around thirty miles a day on any full day, which uh, doesn't sound like that much anymore. But twenty years ago, that was unheard of. That was literally unheard of. And indeed, we heard of you. So you and I have a good history. (laughs) We heard of you. (laughs) You were one of the people that came out to meet me on the trail when nobody knew who who, who I was, you and Peter, which is pretty cool because I know who you guys were because you guys had set the FKT on the John Muir Trail, and I I heard about that. So I knew who you were before you knew who I was. This is correct. And we heard about you. We tracked you down through your father, interestingly enough, who has a strong history. And we, he told us where you'd be. And I'm just going to, you know, go personal on this because this was notable. I, I can remember this whole thing. Peter and his wife, Stephanie Errett, and I drove over to Grand Lake. It was a cold day in September. It was snowing. It was just gray. Yeah. We just sat there in front of the Grand Lake post office, which is a log cabin. And Sure enough, when the post office was about to open, you just walked out of the weeds and there you were <laughs> to pick yeah, up your just, general delivery it was, package. It was snowing that night, so uh, I had arrived right in town the night before and couldn't get into the hostel. So I just camped on some back porch to get out of the snow and walked to the post office just at opening time. And there you were. And it's, we were so impressed because we had never heard of how this was done. You showed us how what the technique is, which are, if you don't mind me recounting this for other people, you spent like almost a year preparing everything. So you figured out every little item of gear, all the food, all the maps. It was just uncanny amount of methodical preparation and labeled boxes to yourself to general delivery post offices along your planned itinerary. And put them in a spare bedroom of your father's house. So on the appointed day, he went and saw the date on it, dropped it in the mail, and then you would arrive at that post office hitchhiking sometimes or walking in off the trail. And there would be all your food and all your gear for the next section. So instead of going to town and rummaging around and trying to figure it out, it was boom, in, boom, out, walk. Yep. It was yeah, extraordinarily I had, I had almost, impressive work. 
I had almost 90 resupply points, and I figured that if I spent even one extra hour in every one of those 90 uh, resupply points, that would take 90 hours, which even on a 24-hour day is four days' worth of extra time. And if you figure it's more like a 12-hour day in terms of actual work, it, you, you lose about a week on your schedule if you take one extra hour in every resupply point. And that could be the difference between making it before winter sets in and not making it. And but again, what you just said, you said it so simply and matter-of-factly, but no one had done that. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm an engineer by trade. Uh, you know, I, I quit my engineering job to, to get the entire year off. I basically retired from my engineering job and have not gone back to engineering since. But, uh, yeah, I, I approached it as an engineer because that's that's what I am. Right, and uh, we, we so much appreciated that because we had – a degree of speed, not, I mean, in a relative sense, I should say we had speed, but you had yeah, that yeah. methodicalism. And as we've seen over the next 20 years, and this is a common theme on the fastest known podcast when I'm talking to people like Legend, uh, Jeff Garmier, and of course, right. you know, Carol Slave, the, the through hikers basically beat the ultra runners after about two weeks of time, anything longer than yeah. two weeks. And it's not because of speed. It's because of this extraordinary Efficiency. level of methodicalism. Yeah, no, it, in some sense, when uh, you and I met on the trail, that was the first real meeting of a through hiker and an ultra runner because we're, as you know, we're very, very close cousins. But we do have different approaches to the same ultimate goal, and we have learned immense amounts from each other, immense amounts, because the best through hikers now know an awful lot about ultra running. Good point. Unfortunately, the, the reverse is not true. It, not as true, it, um, but I think that the best um, ultra runners are looking at the preparation uh, mindset of the through hikers um, because, you know, how many people take trekking poles on a, on a major hundred if, if, if they're allowed, you know, some people do, some people don't, but people think about it now. Um, now people now plan, do. Plan, their, plan their gear very, very carefully. And uh, I would argue that that's a skill that they learn from the through hikers. Well, hopefully they're learning. I think, uh, <laughs> I think ultra runners are a little slow sometimes to reach outside the box and pick up from other sports. But Peter and I, if, if Peter was sitting here right now, he would tell the yeah. same story because we, our eyes were opened by your technique and you didn't stop moving. You would start, no. you know, you'd wake up in the morning and 10 minutes later you were walking and you would be pulling dry right. granola out of a plastic bag in your shorts pockets and eating it as you go and yeah, then well, lunch was snicker bars because you had the calories you could count the calories of a bar very easily and you had the calories all counted in advance and you right. would simply keep moving non-stop until it's too dark to see then you basically just lay down and okay. erect that funky little poncho tarp and uh, to this day, I think most ultra runners assume that I'm some kind of a great ultra runner. And as you know, I'm not a great ultra runner. I'm an average plus ultra runner, maybe a sub elite at best. But it means that I cannot outrun runners. So how do I keep up in, in ultras? It's, well, it's because I'm very, very efficient. You know, it's that constant forward motion. It's that, you know, don't stop at an aid station. Get, get, get in, get out, get your food. You know, if you need to walk while you're eating, go ahead and do that. If you need to pee while you're walking, do that, but just keep moving. Uh, and I, you know, that allows me to keep up with people that are inherently much faster than I am. And 
you would stop on that trail and uh, get in half into the sleeping bag, get out your cat can stove, which I think your father might have been the first person to publicize how to construct a take a can that of cat particular food. design. Yeah. was one that he made there, there there were other designs that people were you know passing to one another by email and things like that but pretty much previous designs were just uh a tin can open pour pour liquid in it light it on fire and you have a little portable campfire and those are not very efficient so my my dad's design was was one of the first efficient uh alcohol stoves i made his exact design and used it for many years oh, very cool <laughs> And then you, of course, had things like, uh, you know, your, your Primaloft jacket that you just put your tarp over, your poncho tarp over that in bad weather. And the Primaloft right. could handle the moisture just fine. And so you, the whole layering thing, you just stripped that way down. Everything you stripped down. We were so impressed, except, except I also recall you had three dinners for the entire 10 months. And I thought, eh. That's a little too much. I could not handle three, three dinners. Three different okay. types of dinners. I, I ate more than three meals in well, I'm <laughs> three sorry, right. But I, I know what you mean. But, yes, I, I, I had three different kinds of dinners. And, again, that's an efficiency thing because um, I didn't need more than three types of dinners. And I realize that that makes me unusual, but you played to your own strengths. And so I didn't need a lot of variety in my diet. And that just made it easier for my dad and the packing. And for me, I don't need to decide what dinner I'm going to eat. I just get one of the three out and I make it and I know how to make it because I made it three days ago and off we go. Well, that's an interesting aspect of efficiency. By paring it down and being very minimal and very simple, it's not just about lightweight. It's about time because you're being very repetitive. So you can get in and out of camp literally in one quarter of the time than the average person. Right. As you may or may not know, there is a, a fringe element to ultralight uh, that appeared very, very quickly. And you'll still see around today, which some of us call stupid light, which is uh, there's lightness for lightness sake. In right. words, if you want to say that I've got a three and a half pound base gear set, you can do that. But you're having to waste so much time because you're optimizing for the weight itself, uh, because the, the goal for me was not lightness to be for lightness sake, it was lightness for efficiency sake, then there's extra weight you might carry because it's more efficient. And that's always been my style. Right. A stupid light. Well, that's young male syndrome. So we competed everything, whatever it is. I mean, when I was growing up, it was hot cars. It's like a big engine. Right. How big is the engine? And even exactly. for a while there, are, I think there was your CPU speed on your computer. And then sure. there was the base weight. The whole thing was the base, what's your base weight? And then right. who's got the lowest base weight? Uh, yep. So there's a because little people would, people would put stuff in their pockets to get their base weight down. So then we had to go to what we call skin out weight. So if you were carrying it in any way, shape, or form, it counted. <laughs> so oh, anyway, well. it's, 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 it's a rat's nest of, uh, of, of sub-optimizations. <laughs> Suboptimizations. Well, you, you do have that good background. I remember you were a smart man, Brian, because you were involved with the tech industry very, very early on. You mentioned companies I had never heard of. And you finally right. got to Hewlett Packard designing computers, and then you cashed in all your shares, if I recollect this correctly from all those years ago when you told me, right when that bubble is about to burst and you took an early uh early exit yeah i mean i, I 
it, it, it sounds like I'm a dot com millionaire, which is definitely not the case. Oh, I'm, I'm, so, I thought you were too. I'm... <laughs> well, I, I, uh, you know, I graduated from college when I graduated from college, which was 1983, and I was raised in Silicon Valley. So, uh, you know, I was, I was born into the tech boom, more or less. But I, I worked for a company for 17 years, which is a little bit unusual. And it was called Tandem Computers, and they're the original fault-tolerant computer company. And they were bought out by Compaq, uh, and then eventually they were bought out by Hewlett-Packard, which is what you're saying, that I worked for Hewlett-Packard. But I actually did not work for them while they were part of Hewlett-Packard. But that's that's where they are today. Um, but um, – yeah, I, I worked for high tech. Um, now, Tandem was not a company that most people have heard of, so therefore you can kind of infer that nobody uh, except maybe the first few founders got particularly wealthy off that particular company. Certainly by the time I joined it, I was not getting huge amounts of stock, and even if yeah, even if I did, it wouldn't have been worth all that much. The stock went up, the stock went down, and I learned an awful lot about stocks and stock picking and saying you don't want to own one stock because unless it's the right stock, which is like being struck by lightning, you want to be diversified. So um, over the course of my 17-year career, I learned that I did like tech, but I wanted to be diversified in tech. So I actually sold uh, most of my company stock and, and bought uh, high tech mutual funds. Uh, and that's, as you can probably imagine, wasn't that bad in the late 80s and 90s, especially. That was the tech boom. So I did ride the tech boom, but it, I didn't, I didn't ride one particular company. I see. Um, I see. Well, you were a smart man. You were, in 2001, you, you had a vision for the future, what it might look like. And, and, and I was just dumb lucky, right? My my plan was to do this big hike and on and around about the year 2001, and that turned out to be just one year after the peak of the tech boom. So I was getting out of all my tech stocks because I didn't want to have a bunch of tech stocks that I couldn't manage while I was out on the trail. So I sold them before I left, and that happened to be at the top of the tech boom. Um, oh, so I, I, was, I, I thought that was just brilliant planning. I, this is the first well, I've heard about that. Depends on which version of the story you tell. <laughs> um, but the truth is nobody can be that perfect. So um, even if I wanted to claim that I saw it all coming and I was completely prescient, um, I've proven since then that I, I can't time the market that well in the, in the, in the booms and busts that have come since. So uh, I have to admit that I, I was lucky. But, hey, better lucky than good, right? Indeed. And, of course, this big fat check will send you for being on the podcast. That should help out then. <laughs> Exactly. This is how I make ends meet. Good. Well, okay. The calendar triple. And thanks for that long explanation. I, I still, it's still fresh in my mind, even though that was 2001. That was, that was moving. That was 20 years ago, Buzz. (laughs) I I, I learned. Peter learned. And so a lot of what Peter and I did since then, uh, was borrowing from your methodology. And you kept it going though. So 2001 and then takes us to 2006 and you right. entered the Barkley Marathon, which is now this is a different proving ground. This isn't just yeah, hiking totally. off into the sunset for 300 straight days. This no. is no sunset. You're going to keep going. Right. But this is the most through hike like ultra run that there is, which is why that's the end of the uh, of the ultra running uh, universe that I entered, because it was the one that it was that played to my strength and was most normal to me, despite the the abnormal uh, reputation that the Barkley actually has. Right. And you I was you told me about this and I was not encouraging. I thought, oh, man, this could be so hard. It could be so annoying. But typical 
For you, you just dove into it. You figured it out. You had total determination. And again, you could explain this in your words, but from the outside looking in, you're a problem solver. You're an engineer. You wanted to figure this out. I, I would describe it as I'm, I'm an independent thinker. I mean, I was able to sell tech stocks at the peak of the tech boom. And I cannot tell you how many people that I was working with that said, you're nuts to sell all your stocks. We're making, we're making, a, you know, almost literally millions. And I said, yeah, but then these things never last forever. And, uh, if you're, if you hold on to it too long, you're, you're going to regret it. Um, and it turns out in the long run, I was, I was right, but, um, you know, the, the same thing was was true with the calendar triple crown. There were there were triple crowners at the time that I talked to that said, "No, it's impossible." And that that's one of the ways that I gauged if people knew what I was attempting because the people that had some clue of what I was trying to do said, "No, that 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 cannot be done." And the, but if somebody said, "Oh, that's great, have a nice time," then I, I knew they didn't have a clue. But I did the math. I'm an engineer. I figured it out. I took my own counsel. And I said, yeah, I think that can be done. And I approached Barclay the same way because at the time it had a reputation of being impossible. It's not that it was impossible. Obviously, six people did it before I did. But it was always felt like uh, you really need a really, really good day and you really got to put everything together and make it all work out right. And I approached it the same way, put it down on paper and looked at it and said, yeah, I think I can do this. And uh, it took me three years, but eventually, <laughs> eventually I was able to do it. And indeed you did. You have, of course, this doesn't mean that much since Gary always changes the course, but you actually right. have the fastest time. You have the so-called course record, even though there isn't such a thing. Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. There, there, especially when it comes to Barclay, there is no such thing as a course record because it, it, the course gets harder every time somebody finishes it. But even by that standard, I do not have the fastest time. Uh, Brett Mowney, uh beat my record by over three hours. So oh. I have the second fastest time. My apologies to Brett. And uh, I've been thinking about Brett this entire conversation because you do, two of you have a certain things in common. Oh, yeah. You, <laughs> two pieces of pot. <laughs> Thank you for saying it. That was kind of how I was thinking. <laughs> We're both equally weird. I, I will fess up to that too. <laughs> well, you're, Brett's a brilliant scientist, as you know. He is. And he takes methodicalism to the next level. And when he yeah. did the JMT, it, people were like, what? No, he's fabricated. There was some controversy on his JMT effort because he basically hiked it and blew off the, some of the yeah. best ultra runners in the world with his time. And right. then you talk to him about it and he was practicing filling his water bottle at a stream yeah. to exactly. save 30 seconds. And that's one of the reasons why we have all the uh, verification uh, requirements in FKTs these days is because, uh, you know, in the very first round of FKTs that you did and people like I did, um, you became known or you were already known. So it was kind of like we're all buddies and, of course, we're not going to lie to each other. So, yeah, you say you did something, I believe you and vice versa. But once the circle gets big enough that we don't know everybody, it's like, well, what happens when somebody – and Brett Mountie was the first big example. None of us knew him. He's just world-class athlete for sure. And we, we know him now, but when he showed up and did what he did, we had to say, Oh my God, did he do that? Is he that good or, or, or is he cheating? And, uh, you know, it was a tough, it was a tough thing to figure out. Right. But, uh, we did because he entered a hundred mile races and did other things. And it's like, okay, all these things are in the same category. Now I believe him, but uh, you can't have FKTs go on um, faith alone because there are cheaters out there that will, that will make up a story. 
Right. Yep. Well, you went to uh, Barclay 2006, 2007, then 2008. You did it right. in 55 hours, 42 minutes, which is really solid no matter what the course is. Yep. And then that was it. You didn't go back. No. Um, at the time, nobody had uh, done um, Barkley twice. Brett Mounty was the first person to do it twice. And uh, if you ask him, and I have, uh, the reason he went back the second time was because he wanted to fly on Brian's record. And I can't I can't blame him for that. Uh, records are made to be broken. So he became a finisher, but he didn't break my record. So he came back the next year uh, to specifically to get the record and in so doing also began the first two time finisher. Gotcha. And of course now we have a three time finisher. So there's always those, those, uh, th- those records as well. We could have a four time finisher. We'll see. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I think Jared's. Is Jared, Jared coming back? Well, he actually was back this last year and had a terrible okay. ankle sprain like uh, eight miles into it as it took him right out. And okay. John Kelly was back this year, but Jared told me that two-time finisher at Barkley is really hard. It's uh, because the yeah. level of emotional commitment, you almost can only do it once. Yeah, no, I, I, I would argue that until, you know, Brett and Jared are the only multiple finishers we, we have, um, you know, you could make a pretty good argument that there will never be a two-time finisher because it's so f- difficult, it's so far out there that without the internal motivation of, I want to achieve this goal, you can't truly give it 100%. I'm not one of these people that believes in giving 110%. I'm an engineer. 100% is 100%. And the truth is 100% is impossible. So the question is how close to 100% can you come? And when you're you know, fighting for your first finish at Barclay, you can maybe give 98 or 99%. But the second time around, you might only be able to give 95%. And maybe that's not good enough, especially when Gary makes it harder because you finished it last time. So <laughs> right. being a multiple-time finisher is very difficult because where do you get the motivation? And, and it's an, as you say, it's inherent. So you finish it. Oh, I think I'll go back and see and just do it again. Take some time off. Well, Gary just made the course harder. So it exactly. gets uh, interesting. And there are a number of people that have gone back to to try it and do a second finish. You know, before before I, I I even came along, and nobody even came close to finishing a second time. And I talked to them, and they basically said the same thing that I'm telling you. It's like, well, yeah, it's really really hard and you're going to have to suffer and how much are you willing to suffer for a second finish you're you're one of the handful of finishers how much more glory is there right that's the question we have to answer actually how much more glory was there (laughs) in other words well we'll just leave that one aside for now (laughs) but for me no i i I had no desire to go back i I achieved my goal and and i've moved on Indeed, you've moved on to being an assistant guide for Andrew Skirka Adventures. Yeah. Andrew's a great guy. We've had him on this podcast, uh, a, a bolder person. And indeed, we've had other assistant guides on, come to think of it. Well, yeah. I was. I've been, I've done right. it twice myself. And the Long Ranger, uh, Justin Simone. Now you are leaving for Alaska in just two days. Yeah. Couple days. Yep. I've got all my gear in the in the in the in the scene behind me. <laughs> Good thing it's a podcast. It looks like a hurricane went off in this in this room. <laughs> and you, you're obviously really qualified to do this. You're a nice guy. You're good with people, and you have a great background. And you can really show them um, how to hike 
uh, an efficient manner. And I, I want to just make a personal editorial comment on this. You know, people say, well, it's not about speed. I don't care how fast I just want to enjoy it. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. But how do you enjoy hiking with a backpack? And I think the real formula does come down to weight. And we're not going to talk about stupid light. We're carrying right. so little that it's just getting irritating. But weight really does impact your enjoyment. So to Absolutely. me, if you're carrying lighter, too much, it's, it's, no just, fun. it's just no fun. So to me, the, the little formula, the one liner is lighter is faster, but it's also easier. It's the same equation. Yep. I had a lot of people saying, you know, why did you go so fast on the calendar triple crown? And it doesn't seem so fast today, but at the time it was like, you know, why did you get in your Indy 500 car and go through the woods? Uh, well, as people are finding out, it's it's not that hard to go as fast as I was going. 30 miles a day is something that almost anybody could do. Uh, I said that at the time, and people looked at me like I was being excessively um, – you know, either naive or, or, or whatever. But you know, th- by today's standards, where people are averaging 50 miles a day, 30 is not that big a deal. So I literally had a great time on the calendar triple crown, doing what at the time was considered impossible and fringe. But it really wasn't, and I knew it wasn't. And I slept at night. You know, I slept eight hours every day, and I walked every day as long as, long as I wanted. And when I was done walking, I set up camp and then did it the next day. So I just walked at a comfortable pace every day. And <laughs> so doing was able to average 30 miles a day. But that comes from 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 the lightweight gear. And um, but no, I had a great time doing the calendar triple ground. I did not suffer. I, it's an FKT that I set that was. Um, Easy enough at the time that uh, it was 100% an enjoyable experience. I mean, there, there, of course, there's bad days. I mean, you, you can't do 300 days of backpacking without running into some bad weather days and some days when you just, you know, don't don't have the internal motivation or whatever. But you know, that's that's just life. It's not like I was out there, you know, trying to get by on three, four. Hours of sleep, like some people do on on other FKTs, and uh, how much how much more suffering can you take than the previous guy? When when I was setting FKTs, it was it was a joy. That's a great call out, Brian. It was fun. You had a good time, and yeah. you were getting eight yeah. hours of sleep. You weren't on the rivet like we've nope. seen, particularly on the Appalachian Trail, sometimes where people are just uh, just going after that number. But you were in right. control. You were within yeah. your limits, and Right. You were well fed, well hydrated. And I don't want people to, to, to misunderstand what I'm saying because I know we are talking to people who respect and go after FKTs. Uh, I am definitely the guy that says, Hey, if, if two hours of sleep and being, you know, rubbed to the, to the rawest you can be is fun. And to extent, some extent it is, uh, I say go for it because yeah, a, a great, achieving great things is a lot of fun. Figuring out how to do it, you know, being the person who's, you know, Got the physical wherewithal and the mental wherewithal and the spiritual wherewithal to do it means that in the moment you you reach this transcendent state and I'm all for that too, but that gets harder to explain to average Joe. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not sustainable, probably. No, I mean you you can only go at a at a at a red line for a for a certain amount of time and you know. People that do shorter FKTs don't realize j- just how hard it is to do any redlining at all for close to a year. 
you really can't. I mean, the people who, who have, you know, gotten closer to that edge than, than I have, um, will tell you in more detail that, that, than I can, which is, um, you know when you're approaching that edge because you cannot be in that edge for more than a few days at a time. And if you're mm-hmm. stepping out over the edge, like a cornice, it's only a matter of time. It's going to break off. And then you and give up time. Well, if you're out there for 300 days, you're going to crash and burn if you go too, yeah. go, if, if, if you push it too far. You'll so lose so time. The, difference between, the difference between possible and impossible is a, is, is a, is a very narrow window. You, you, you got to go right up to the edge and then you got to ride that edge. Um, but you cannot step over it. Whereas wow. if you're in a shorter race, you can step over it for, you know, 10 hours or maybe even five or six days, but you can't do that for months on end, but the, the body won't do it. That's uh, it's an interesting conversation we're having here, Brian. I liken that to, for example, the marathon, which I think is one of the hardest race distances there is. It is. It is. But you're running uh, downhill to a certain degree. You cannot possibly eat and drink what you're expending. Now, people try to do right. that and say, okay, well, I'm going to burn this many calories. I'm going to eat this much food. That isn't really how the top end people do it. You're just sure. depleting the tank and running it out. And that's actually an efficient way to do it. But if you're it doing is. a hundred miler, that doesn't work very well, but you still want to kind of run the tank dry by the time you finish right. in a hundred. But if you're doing these multi days, that's a terrible strategy. No, I mean, there's a good analogy. I think ultra runners know that marathoners are running on the glycogen tank. So they're, they're, they're trying to keep the glycogen tank running for two hours and two minutes or whatever the world record is right now. Um, and you can do that if you're really, really well trained, but when you're out of the glycogen, we all know that that's a very big deal. Once you get into the ultra marathon world, then you're, you're, you assume that that tank's going to be emptied, you know, before the end. So you, you, you do monitor it, you do maintain it, but at that point you're, you're, you're running on the edge of keeping your stomach running. Because if your stomach stops running, then you don't get any more calories in and then you really bonk. So you so, uh, most ultra marathon runners are, are running on, on the edge of their, of their digestion being able to work. Well, you know, multi-month FKTs, you're running on your fat reserves running out or not. If you, um, you know, read the accounts of people like Heather Anderson and the, and the weight that that she was losing over months, um, you know that you're going too fast when you can't maintain your weight. So there's there's the next level of of physical body limit. Hmm. Interesting. What what great conversation. I love this. The different techniques, the methods, and then as you mentioned earlier, we all can learn and grow from. We can adopt different techniques from the different sub-disciplines to improve yep. our own game and also to branch out a little bit, whether it's going shorter and faster or longer and slower. But sure. uh, I think what you said to me is really remarkable. You did 300 days, the first person ever to do this, and you enjoyed it. You finished I feeling did. fine. I, I, I did not gain or lose a pound the entire year. So I, <laughs> I, I, was, not, I was not with people that was losing weight, like I said. I had bad days. I had some snow days. The, the day you met me was 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 the, the beginning of the worst snowstorm of the whole year. So you got to see one of the bad sections, and you know we had a great time out there. Yeah. I had a wonderful time because I was able to enjoy, you know, share the trail with people that could keep up with me. And, you know, <laughs> when you're the fastest through hiker, then no through hiker can keep up with you by definition. Well, what do you need? You need an ultra runner. <laughs> These guys are cool. 
<laughs> I had never seen it from that perspective. That's that's really fun to see it from your perspective. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're leaving for Alaska. Wow. Next. Uh, what else is next up for you? I mean, you've done some races, obviously Barclay, obviously yeah. through hiking. You're doing some guiding. What's what's up for Flying Brian? Well, you know, I I I, I follow my own counsel. Uh, so I got a couple of answers to that question. So one of the things is what I am doing now is I am doing uh, volunteer trail work. Um, hmm. I have always, always, always admired the condition of trails that I've been able to hike on. And by definition, if you're doing an FKT, it's a set course that's got to be maintained in one way, shape, or form because you're not, you know, well, it depends on the FKT. Things like Nolan's, no, okay, there's no trail there. But the vast majority of FKTs are on trails. And the condition of that trail has everything to do with the fact that you're going there and how fast you can go. That thought was was not lost on me. So I have always said, you know, one of these days I'm I'm, I'm going to start giving back to the to the trail wor- world by by doing trail work. So I'm a volunteer wilderness ranger with the Ventana Wilderness Alliance, which is uh, south of the Monterey area where I live. It's basically the mountains above Big Sur. It's a world class wilderness area. It's a wonderful place to do trail runs. The only problem is that we have a whole lot of brush, and there's just not enough people to c- keep all the brush clear. So that's one of the things that I do now is I go out and I I clear brush and I cut logs off the trail and have a great time doing it. And I spend time in the wilderness with people that like doing that sort of thing. And so that's one of the things that I'm doing. Um, and uh, the other thing is I'm about to turn 58 later this month. So, uh, you know, I got into this kind of thing fairly late when I did my Barkley record. I was 45 when I did the counter triple crown. I turned 40 that year. So I was not a guy that started in my 20s. Uh, I got started to this pretty late. So I'm, I'm pretty much an old fart. Um, and you so be careful I, what numbers you use when you talk about it. You got to remember who you're talking to here. Okay, Buzz, you're one of the few who's older than I am. <laughs> but so you know exactly what, what I'm talking about. Um, when, when, when you get to the point in your ultra career of, of, of any kind, you realize that you're never ever going to be as fast as you were. So you either do one or two things. You either just hang it up and don't even try, or you try and find things that are new or different or slightly different, or just enjoy what you can do. And I'm in that part of my career. Um, I am all about uh, sharing the experience with people, either if you're doing trail work or introducing people to ultralight techniques through Andrew Skirka's um, guiding trips or just talking to people. Um, but I'm, I'm doing what I can, and I'm not worrying about doing what I can't do. Um, Two years ago, I ran Western States for the third time, 29 hours and 25 minutes, only tw- only half an hour ahead of the cutoffs. It reminded me of Barkley all over again. It's like I'm pushing cutoffs, which is something that you just never do when you're a Barkley finisher because every other race you're way above the cutoffs, but that's, the, that's your life at Barkley. Well, I've reached the point in my, my career now where if I enter a 100-mile race and I'm not really well-trained or having a somewhat bad day, I literally may not be able to finish anymore, and that's no fun. Um, so I don't know. I may or may not run another 100-mile race. I haven't run one in two years. I have no desire to right now because what I would rather do now is I'd rather go out for pretty much all day. I did a 34-mile run uh, a couple of days ago you know, on good trails and nobody out there but me. Right. And I, I personally find that more fun now because um, – you know, unless I want to go for an age group record or something like that, uh, I, I'm just not not competitive at the top end anymore. So it's competing is not fun because <laughs> I used to win and I don't anymore. So you know, 
what what's left. You you just have to find what's left. And for me, it's sharing the experience, teaching, and just going out and doing what I can do at my speed and enjoying what I can do because I can see some amazing things. And you know, truthfully, that's one of the best things about FKTs is you can do an FKT, and of course, you can't have a a race because races are not allowed in a lot of the best places in the world. But you can do an FKT there. And uh, if you're doing an FKT and you've got an entourage, you might get noticed, and that might even be a problem for doing FKTs in some of the national parks. But you can always, always, always go out on your own, doing your own thing with nobody noticing and enjoying yourself. And so you can do some of the finest things in the world at a slower pace by yourself than you ever could in any sort of an organized fashion, including an FKT. So why not? Uh, I think you you gave me the code word for this years ago. You called it. Projects are where it's at, Brian, and I, I, that's one of the things that I've learned from, from you, Bud, Buzz. The, the projects are where the fun is. Wow. Well, as soon as we record a TV commercial for FastestKnownTime.com, you are on it. That was – I have nothing to say. I have no – that was brilliant. You summarized it. That was – I really appreciate when someone has the wisdom gained from experience – you have a story arc in your career from one thing to another to another and, and look at the maturity. And so you're still very dynamic. You're still bringing something to the table and to do volunteer trail work right now, in my opinion, is one of the coolest things anyone can do. So Brian, congratulations. <laughs> congratulations. You're showing the way again. Yeah. You get a, a six foot saw and you can cut a, a, a red width is four feet thick out. A couple of guys can do it and, couple of hours. It's truly amazing. <laughs> and, you know, the places I like to do, do, do trial work are, are, are in wilderness areas. You can't bring a chainsaw in there. It's all hand tools. Okay. It's really, really fun. And you get a huge personal um, thrill out of clearing a four-foot redwood off of a trail. You are pointing the way once again, Brian. Thanks. It's great talking with you. I look forward to seeing you in person as soon as we can. Yeah.